Most gracious Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you have given me understanding of this text. And I pray, Lord, that you would work your word in the hearts of all of us today. By the power of your Spirit, give us understanding, clarity, and conviction that we may apply it to our lives and glorify Christ in all that we do. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be continuing our parable studies today. We're in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we've only got one more parable left. We've been doing this for two, a little bit over two years now, uh, going through the parables. The only parable we have left after this one today is going to be the parable of the sheep and the goats. And we're also coming to an end of our Genesis study, uh, which will be ending right around the same time um, as, uh, as it would happen to be. You know, the cry of our culture is for justice and for equality. And I fear that in, in ways that we could maybe not even begin to possibly fathom, that we have begun as a culture to value equality so much that it's become an idol. Because even good things can become idols. In fact, we're more inclined to make a good thing an idol than we are to take something that is intrinsically and you know, naturally bad and turn that into an idol. Michael Horton wrote this. He said, quote, We picture idolatry as the worship of something evil. And that's true, right? He says, However, most of our idols are good servants that we have made lords. End quote. And I fear that our culture has done exactly that with the concepts of justice and equality. Worse than that, I fear that many within the church in our day and age have followed the culture's lead in idolizing equality. And so we take the culture's definition of what it means instead of having a biblical category of equality and, and justice and what that means biblically. I fear that we take the culture's definition. See, there's this movement within Christianity right now that you've, you've heard me talking about for the past couple months. They're very vocal about their desire to tear down all hierarchies. Not only social hierarchies, not only social structures, but also structures within the church that have stood for 2,000 years. And it's all in the name of equality. And that's what it looks like when you turn equality into an idol. Equality is a good thing, but tearing down biblical mandates is a bad thing. And I can't help but think that this is why some very prominent church leaders in our day and age uh, voiced support for a socialist candidate in the last presidential election. Because socialism claims to stand for equality, but it doesn't. In his book, The Problem with Socialism, which is a play on Margaret Thatcher's words, author Thomas DiLorenzo says this. He says, quote, The essence of the socialist enterprise is to use the coercive powers of government to turn us all into identical bricks. The desire to turn unique human beings into identical socialist bricks explains why socialist regimes are often totalitarian, because it is the only way they can make a serious attempt to achieve their aims. End quote. 
And many of the Christians who voice support for this socialist candidate, many of the Christians who support this movement are convinced that this is exactly what Jesus would do. This is what He would have supported. And I don't know if they would use the passage that we're going to be looking at today, but I would actually think that this passage could be so easily twisted and so easily misunderstood that this would be one of the passages that they would be most likely to turn to to support the idea of justice and equality and some type of socialism, socialist structure. Because on the surface, the parable that we're looking at appears to be about equality. But let me tell you in advance, here's a spoiler alert, this parable is not about equality. Uh, In one sense, not the fullest sense, I guess you could say that that there is one sense in which there's an aspect of equality in here, but at the same time, let's be mindful of the parable of the talents. You guys remember the parable of the talents? In the parable of the talents, Jesus tells this story about three servants, and one receives five talents, another one receives three and another receives one. And the master in that parable, what we saw when we studied it, was, it was a picture of God. And so it's clear that God gives some more and He gives some less. And that's His sovereign right to do that. And you might say, well, that wasn't a lesson about economics. I'd say, you're right, it wasn't a lesson about economics. But neither is the one that we're looking at today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. And as you're getting there, let me kind of give you a rundown to set the context and explain uh, how we got to the passage that we'll be looking at today. In chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, the disciples of Jesus do something that might seem really strange to us. Some people bring children to Jesus for Him to lay His hands on them and pray for them, and the disciples take it upon themselves, take the responsibility upon themselves to scorn these people and to shoo the children away, rebuking the people who brought these children to Jesus. And Jesus responds to them. He addresses them in response to them by saying, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now this had to have been an absolutely shocking statement to the disciples. But actually, if you go back a little bit further in the chapter, right before that, Jesus is scorning and rebuking the Pharisees. So Jesus was saying that the kingdom of heaven belonged to such as these? These children? But not to the Pharisees? I mean, this was, this was mind-blowing. This was so contrary to human thinking, so against the ways that the disciples would see things or, or think about things, the way, and, and the way that we would uh, see things and think about things as well. Next, after, after rebuking the disciples for preventing the children from coming to them, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, also in Matthew chapter 19 who wanted to know what good thing he must do to inherit or to obtain eternal life. That's in verse 16. And Jesus' response was to tell the man to keep the commandments. Just a general statement, just keep the commandments, right? And then the man's response is very interesting. He says, which ones? Which ones? It's an interesting question because it reveals that he wasn't keeping all of the commandments. And he especially was not keeping the first commandment. You guys remember what the first commandment is? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that word before actually means in my presence. 
So the first commandment is really, you shall have no other gods in my presence. And that's the glue that binds all the commandments together. Because every time we sin, that sin is rooted in a violation of that first commandment. It's rooted in idolatry. But Jesus gives them a response. He says, he starts listing off some commandments. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody notice what he left out there? Are those all the commandments? No, those aren't all the commandments. He left out the first three commandments. And why is that? I mean, we can only kind of speculate, but I think it's because the only reason that we do any of the commandments that Jesus did list is because we're upholding the first three that he didn't list. Or maybe he wanted to see if the man even realized that he left out some of the commandments. See, Jesus is dealing with external actions in all these things. He's not even dealing with the heart. But there is a connection between what's going on in our heart and what is taking place in our actions, right? But either way, it seems that the man doesn't even notice that Jesus left out some of the commandments. Because he responds to Jesus saying, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? And that's a really interesting comment too. Because it indicates that he realizes something is missing. He realizes that he doesn't have something. This rich man who can probably buy anything he wants. There's something that he wants and he realizes he doesn't have it. And so he asks, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? He knew he was lost. He could have said, okay, great, thanks. I'm I'm doing those things, so... I must have it and not even realize it, right? No, he realizes that he thinks he's doing all the right things, but he realizes that it's not enough. And so this is interesting if if we look at how this all sets up the context for what we're going to be looking at today, because first Jesus rebukes and, and scorns the Pharisees who think that the kingdom of heaven belonged to them because of what? Because of their righteousness, because of their outwardness, there's nothing going on in their hearts. They're, they're, they're like whitewashed tombs, right? They're dead, in the, they're dead inside. But outwardly, they've got these long flowing robes. They're doing all these good works, right? Then Jesus encounters the children, or he has the children brought to them, whom the disciples don't think deserve the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus comes across this man who knows he doesn't have the kingdom of heaven, but he wants to obtain it. And he's not sure how. And Jesus' response to this man is to tell him to go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. By the way, that's not an imperative command to every believer. Unless your things are your gods, get rid of them, right? That's, That's Old Testament. You get rid of the idols. And if there's something that you value more than God, you are to cleanse your house of it, right? So Jesus says, Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And that was impossible for this man to do on his own because he loved his things, his idols, so much more than he had a desire to be a disciple of Jesus. So the rich young man went away sad because the price, the cost of following Christ was too high. The cost of eternal life was something he could not afford. So then Jesus turns to his disciples and he laments 
about how difficult it is, how impossible it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And this would have been a shocking statement for them as well because it was so contrary, again, to everyone's way of thinking. They were just as inclined to believe the prosperity gospel in their day as people are today. And that is the, the false and the unbiblical belief that, uh, that God rewards the righteous in accordance with their faith. In other words, the more faith you have, the more material possessions you have, or the more wealth you have. That, that is false. And there, there's, there's something in the disciples and the people in that day and age that even wanted to believe it. Much more in, in this day and age. But upon hearing that Jesus had to say, what Jesus had to say to the rich man about giving away all of his property, Peter blurts out, and you know you got to duck when Peter blurts out, right? Anytime Peter blurts out something, it's like, oh, let's just hold our breath here for a second. He says, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? See, Jesus was talking about treasure and rewards in heaven. And Peter, and maybe the other disciples, Peter would often speak on behalf of the other disciples, but at least Peter wants to know what the reward for this great sacrifice they've made is going to be. And what does Jesus say? Well, it's kind of surprising that this isn't the place where he says, get behind me, Satan. That comes in another place. That's not what he says in this, on this occasion. No, Jesus does tell them they'll be rewarded. They would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And you know what having that piece of information very easily could have done? It very easily could have inflated the egos of every single one of the disciples. They're thinking, wow, I get to do this. I must be really great to be able to have this privilege of judging the 12 tribes of Israel one day. But Jesus stabs that balloon with a needle before it starts inflating too much by saying this, and this is how chapter 19 ends. He says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And that's what brings us to the 20th chapter of Matthew today, which will start out with a parable that illustrates this concept. Those chapter breaks can be very... um, very disturbing. uh, They can be misplaced um, because the context flows from one chapter into the next. There's not necessarily always a break. Uh, And this one, I think, is is, it's a little bit uh, distracting. That's the word I'm looking for. So chapter 20 just continues right where chapter 19 left off. So if you look down at verse 16 in chapter 20, you'll see that Jesus reiterates his point. He says this, he says, so the last shall be first and the first last. That tells us that whatever goes on in between these two statements that are nearly identical is all one unit. So this is not necessarily the most difficult parable, although it does present difficulties because it has a very strange twist from the middle to the end. But apart from that, it's the type of parable that you can pretty much just read straight through and have some degree of understanding. But it's one of these things that is supposed to make us think. That's what the parables are. They're supposed to make us think and to, to consider all that Jesus has to say, and in addition to the context, why he told this parable. And let's also make note of the fact that Jesus doesn't say, let him who has ears hear, which was usually an indication that the parable that Jesus was giving 
was designed to conceal truth. See, sometimes Jesus gave a parable to conceal the truth, to hide the truth from those who hate the truth. And sometimes he told parables to reveal the truth. So it seems that, uh, that, that in this case, um, he's trying to reveal truth. So maybe there are some unbelieving Pharisees nearby who are still listening who might gain just a, a sliver of understanding from what Jesus has to say. But let's start by looking at verses 1 to 7, the first half of this parable. Jesus says, for, that because, he's pointing back toward the context that we've already covered in chapter 19, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So let's just stop there for a second and, and, and explain, look at what we've already seen. We'll just start with the basics here. The businessman or, or the landowner in this parable clearly represents whom? God, right? Or he represents Christ. It's a, and it's a picture of not agriculture, but it's a picture of the kingdom. Agriculture is demonstrating something about the kingdom, the way the kingdom operates, the way it functions. And the businessman in this parable, he wakes up early and he goes to the place where people would gather, kind of like in, in this day and age. There are places where, you know, if you're, if you're building something and, and you want a hand, you can go to Home Depot. And there are, are several people who will be standing around there hoping for day labor, uh, hoping that somebody will pick them up just to work for the day. So the businessman does the same thing. He goes to the place where people gather uh, people who are hoping that somebody like him would come along looking for people who want to do labor of some sort. And that would typically, in that day and age, that would typically be agricultural labor. So whom do the laborers represent? That's a more difficult question, but the answer is they represent people in general. Just people in general. And let's not miss the first detail here that's crucial. The first detail here that's very important is that the landowner comes to an agreement with these laborers, with the first laborers that he hires, about what a fair and just wage would be. And that wage was a denarius, which was just kind of a standard uh, daily wage at the time. That's what soldiers made. Uh, you, you know, people of, of greater honor would sometimes, you know, make more. But one denarius was pretty standard, and so the, the businessman, uh, the landowner, takes the, the laborers and puts them out in the vineyard to work. What does the vineyard represent in this parable? It's the kingdom, right? So we're, we're talking about God calling people to the kingdom. In addition to the workers who were hired originally early on in the day, the landowner goes out. He goes out again at 9 o'clock. He goes out again at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and 5 o'clock. Those, those are the, the hours that he goes out hiring more laborers each time he goes out. Now, there are two things that we need to make note of here. First of all, he doesn't 
come to some kind of agreement with these workers as to what their wage would be. Instead, what he says to them is, whatever is right, I will give you. And they take that for what it's worth. Secondly, we need to see that we aren't told why he went and hired more laborers. Now, some have speculated that the first guys were lazy, uh, that they weren't doing their job. There's no indication of that in this parable. It does not say that. That would just be a guess. Um, Some would say, well, the, the businessman had more work to do in the vineyard than he realized. Again, that's just pure speculation. The text does not say that. Uh, the text doesn't even indicate either one of these as a possible reason that he would go and get more labor. It's not that the workers he hires later um, weren't there earlier. They weren't gathered earlier. That's not the case because the text does specifically say that they were standing around all day waiting for someone to hire them. So why does the man go and hire more workers? Because he wants to. Because he could. It's his right to do so. If he wants to hire more workers, he has the right to do so. Now, Jesus is going to give us the the twist in the stories. So we want to pay attention to this part. But this is something he would commonly do in the parables. There would be a, a twist. And this is what makes you think. This is what causes us to stop and, and start pondering what he's saying. So let's look at verses 8 to 16. It says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowners, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So, here are those words. So the last shall be first and the first last. So the time comes. The end of the day has come. The sun is setting. The workers are ready to be paid. And this businessman instructs his servant to pay the workers who were hired last to be paid first. And then comes the shocker. This is where the shocker is. The people who were hired at the end of the day received a full day's wage. A denarius. The same amount that the people who started at the beginning of the day agreed to work for. But these people only worked one hour. And they received the same amount. One denarius. The same wage that the first ones, the first hired, agreed to. Let me stop here and make sure that we see something that's very important to understanding this parable. And that is that he is giving those hired last something that they have not earned. He's giving them something that they don't deserve. Everybody with me on that? Would you agree that he's giving them something they have not earned? Because they haven't worked a full day. So he's giving them something they don't deserve. This is fundamental to understanding this parable. We have to understand that he's giving them what they 
could not possibly have earned in one hour. And as this is happening, it seems that the workers who were hired first in the day, who had agreed to the denarius, they're, they're just they're licking their chops. Why? Because they think, wow, these guys who were hired and only worked one hour get a denarius, how much more are we going to get? How much more do we deserve because we worked 12 times as long as those guys? The ones hired last made a full denarius for one hour of work. How much more will this businessman give them? If he's fair, which, which they apparently assume him to be at least fair in their opinion. But we need to see how this is starting to all come together. The parable is preceded, it's kind of started, it's bracketed, and concluded with, with the same words, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's exactly what's going on in this parable. That We can see this happening in this parable. The last workers to be hired are getting paid first, and the first workers to be hired are getting paid last. That's not the way that we would expect it to be from a human perspective, but that's the way it works with this businessman. And it helps Jesus to illustrate the point that he's trying to make here. But, when we, but then we, we see that the people who are in line, they're getting paid, everybody's getting paid the same amount. Everyone's receiving exactly the same wage. Everybody, no matter when they were hired, is receiving one denarius. That's it. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I, I thought you said this isn't about economics. Nope, it's not. Okay, I thought... This wasn't about equality. No, it's not about equality. Not equality on earth anyway. What's it about? It's about the kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. It's about the way God's kingdom works. See, this is how life on earth sometimes works too. You come into a company, you agree to what you will work for, right? And after you, know, after you comes somebody else who isn't quite as skilled as you are. Maybe it's the CEO's son, and so he comes in late if he comes in at all. And he gets paid as, you know, exactly as much as you do for doing the same job, although you do more work. Can you complain? I suppose you can. I'm not sure how much good it'll do, but you agreed to the wage that you agreed to. But this parable is not about earthly economics or the worldly workplace. This is about the kingdom of heaven. So when the workers who were hired first get paid, when, they, when their time finally comes and they get paid, they start what? Grumbling, right. They're, they're getting upset. They're, they're not happy about what they have been paid. They're not happy with their wage. Why not? Because it seems so unfair. Because the businessman paid the same wage to people who worked less time than they did. And so they start thinking, that is unjust. That is unfair. But is it? Is it really unfair? Because that was what they had agreed to. I mean, the standard wage of the day was one denarius. That's what they had agreed to take. So we're forced to see something very important here, and that is that this is absolutely fair. It's not that he was unfair with the workers who were hired first. It's that he was generous and gracious with those who were hired later. So this story is actually designed to expose the prideful, jealous, envious hearts of the workers who were hired first. They feel entitled. They feel like they deserve more. And you see, jealousy and envy 
greed, covetousness, and entitlement, these things are all rooted in the same thing, aren't they? They're all rooted in this nasty thing called pride. We think we deserve so much. We think that it's our right to have as much as everybody else. That's what we want. We think so highly of ourselves. We want so badly what everybody else has. And then some. We don't just want to keep up with the Joneses. We want to pass them. We don't really want equality. What we really want is superiority. We want to work less and receive more. And that is just part of our fallenness. The pride that we have, the sense of entitlement that we have, it's, it's, all, it's all rooted in fallenness. But let me, let me take us a little bit deeper here. Let's, let's probe this, this passage a little bit deeper because the reality here is that if the workers who were hired later in the day had received less, we have to understand that it wouldn't have been enough for them to survive. It wouldn't have been them, uh, enough for them to have bought food and, and provided for their families. We're talking about people who work day to day, paycheck to paycheck, essentially. These are poor people. These aren't people who have huge amounts of savings. These are poor people, destitute people, who need a full day's wage or they will not survive. And you'd think that they would be grateful to receive a fair wage, even these guys who are hired first in the day. You'd think that they would be grateful just to receive what they need to survive, but they're so focused on themselves. They're so focused on what they think they are entitled to that they would rather see somebody else starve than for them to receive what is just. They don't see the graciousness of the landowner. They don't see the, 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 the generosity of the businessman for what it is. Or if they do... They resent it. They hate it. Do you see that? These people hate grace. They resent the unmerited generosity of the businessman. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? The point is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? Those who are prideful get what is just. And those who are humble receive grace. So let's see this in its context. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees back in chapter 19, right? Then He welcomed the children. Then He sent away this idolatrous rich man. And then Peter demanded to know what his reward would be for giving up everything that he had, everything that he owned, in order to follow Jesus. Are you with me? See, Peter wants justice. Peter wants justice. And that's what the people who were hired first wanted as well, wasn't it? But the truth is that there's not a single one of us who actually wants justice from God. Because every single one of us has sinned against Him in thought, word, and deed. Every second of our lives, we have never once, for one second, loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not even for one second. We have lived our lives in sin against God. And justice, justice would require that God cast us into the outer darkness, away from Him, into hell. Justice would, re would require full payment for every single 
second, every single nanosecond that we have sinned against God. Do we really want justice? No. We want grace. We want grace. The workers who were hired first got justice. The workers who were hired later in the day got what? Grace. And that's what we want. We want God's grace. We don't want God's justice to be handed over to us. It's true that everyone who enters into the kingdom gets the same reward. So in a sense, there's equality right there. But here's what we need to understand. Is that entering into God's kingdom, going to heaven, is entirely by the grace of God. So there's no advantage for the, the socially powerful, for the cultural elites, for the rich. There's no advantage that they have over anybody else, including small children. One's social condition does not earn them favor with God. Everyone who's saved enters into the same eternal blessed state. It doesn't matter if you became a Christian when you were three years old or if you become a Christian when you're 99 years old. Everyone who repents and places saving faith in Christ is brought into the kingdom and receives the same blessed reward. That being Christ Himself and His righteous merit imputed to us, transferred to us. Because that's what's required to get into heaven. So in that sense, there's your equality right there. But you see, this isn't a parable mainly about equality. And obviously, this isn't a parable about agriculture, to teach us about agriculture. It's not about a vineyard. It's not about grapes. It's about grace. It's about grace. It's about abundant, unmerited, undeserved grace. It's about the mercy of God who so loved the world that He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and to die and to bear the wrath of God in the place of anyone and everyone who will turn from their sin and put saving faith in Him alone. Is there any injustice with God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Sin must be paid for. God is a righteous judge who will make sure that every sin is paid for, either by the sinner or by His Son, acting as a substitutionary atonement in our place. Either you pay for it or Christ paid for it. There is no third option. There's no injustice with God. And Paul makes that clear for us, doesn't he? And the place I think he makes it most clear is Romans chapter 9, where he's talking about how God is like a potter who is free to do whatever he wants with each respective vessel. And he illustrates it, if you'll remember, with Jacob and Esau. you remember that, that with Jacob and Esau, Esau was actually born first, so the birthright uh, by man's customs would be Esau's, but God had determined that Jacob would receive it. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Not because of works. So it's, it has to be by grace. And God has the right to show grace. God is never unjust. And Paul knew 
that somebody might, might hear this, might read this, and think, well, that seems really unfair. He knows that we might be tempted to think that God is unjust when they're confronted with the doctrine of God's sovereign and unconditional election. And so Paul says this in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And he says, may it never be. That's a very strong statement there. May it never be. And how does he justify that position? How does Paul justify that statement? By referring to Scripture. It's important for us to see that. Scripture is Paul's authority. God is his authority, but Scripture is God's revealed Word. So he refers to Scripture. For those who would say, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, what do you do when Paul refers to the Old Testament? I mean, come on. Paul says this in verses 15 and 16. He says, For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul continues, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now as somebody, speaking of myself here, as somebody who has had a very difficult time coming to terms with the doctrine of election in the past. I know how inclined we are to think that if God calls one person, that is, if He sovereignly elects one person, then justice would demand that He grants saving grace to everyone. But at that point, you aren't talking about grace anymore. Because if God is required to give grace to anyone then it's no longer grace that we're talking about. Now we're talking about obligation, which is antithetical, which is opposed to grace. And that's the point of this parable. God is not obligated to anyone or anything but His own just sovereign nature. His just nature does demand that sin be paid for in full, but justice doesn't prevent Him from providing that payment for whomever He pleases. Because nobody, nobody deserves it. Think of it this way. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that um, the, the ten of my friends and I break into somebody's house. And not only do we break into his house, but we destroy the place. And not only do we break into his house and destroy the place, but we murder his son. And so the ten of us have to go before a judge. We have to be tried. And it just turns, so turns out that that judge is the one whose house we broke into. Does he have, does, does the judge have the right to forgive some, but not others? Of course he does. He doesn't have a right to say, you know, okay, we're just going to like turn a blind eye to this and pretend it didn't happen. But if somebody wrongs you, do you have a choice to make? To forgive them or not? If somebody steals from you, say three people steal from you, do you have the option to forgive one but not two? Of course you do. Of course you do. And that's the point of this parable. That's why the businessman says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own. In other words, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And let us understand that 
human nature is so opposed to God that if we even believe, it's because God has worked in us. And that is mercy. So let's understand that one group in this story received grace and the other group, the first group, received justice. But nobody, nobody from either group received injustice. R.C. Sproul, who was maybe the greatest gift to the church since the Reformation, R.C. Sproul said this. He said, quote, If we were to try to list everything that God owes us, it would be the easiest task we were ever assigned, one we could complete in record time. The truth is, He owes us nothing except His wrath as punishment for all our sins. A much more challenging assignment would be to try to write down all the things we owe God. End quote. And that, friends, is a task that we just couldn't complete. Because with each passing moment, God's grace is what covers our sins. God's grace is freely poured out on us. Everything that we have, every material object, every breath, every moment, is an unmerited gift from God. And so with that said, there's no room, there's no place for jealousy or for envy or for covetousness or greed or entitlement or discontentedness in the Christian heart. And what that means is that ultimately there's no place for pride or boasting before God. Why not? Because God doesn't owe us anything. But we owe Him everything. And this is why the first shall be last. And the last shall be first. It's about being humble and grateful for all that God has given us. But maintaining a humble spirit before God. See, a humble heart is a joyful heart. A humble heart is free to be joyful because humility allows us to see all that we have in life for exactly what it is. And that is, it's all a gift from God. Some will have more. Some will have less in this life. It's God's sovereign right to call and to bless however He desires. As Nebuchadnezzar would say in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but He, God, does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? So let me ask you this, friends. What do you want from God? Do you want justice? Or do you want grace? Do you want what you deserve? Because I have to warn you here that those, just like those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all receive the same wage, I have to warn you that the wage for those who reject Christ is equal for all. And that is an eternity under God's wrath in hell. And that is justice. That is justice. If you have not placed your full confidence for salvation, in Christ, if you have not placed saving faith in Christ, you are on a road that leads to justice. And so I would urge you today to see that justice is not what you want. What you want is grace. And there's only one person, if we think about it, who could make the claim that they have been treated unjustly, and that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Because He never sinned. 
He upheld the law of God perfectly, and His perfect obedience is therefore imputed. It's transferred. It's credited to all who will believe in Him. He is the only one who never earned the wrath of God. And yet, it was the Father's will to crush Him instead of crushing His people. We're talking about the greatest injustice in history here. And people in our day and age get really bent out of shape about injustice, don't they? But we're talking about the greatest injustice of all time in Christ being crushed, suffering the wrath of God. And yet this was the means by which Christ ransomed His people. So if you want to be outraged towards some injustice, let me just say this, be outraged at your sin because it's your sin that made that injustice, that made Christ's death necessary. If you want to get off the road that leads to God's justice, you have to put life-surrendering faith in Christ. You want the justice that was settled once and for all on Calvary's cross. And that grace is only found in Christ, who endured justice in the place of all who would believe in Him. If today you've heard His voice, don't harden your heart and turn away. Don't say, well, I can wait until I'm 99. Let me warn you right now that if you wait, your heart will only harden. It won't become easier when you're on your deathbed. It'll only be harder. If today you've heard his voice, don't harden your heart and turn away and put it off for another day. Rather, come to him in faith and repentance and know that if you do, no matter what you've done, he will never cast you away. He will never cast you away. He will hold you until the end. He will start a work in you and he'll complete his work in you one day. And for those of us who have heard and responded to the voice of Him who calls, and we've taken up our cross to follow Him into the field of God's kingdom. Let us work diligently and faithfully, and let us be humble and grateful for all that the Master gives us and blesses us with. Each thing, each moment, each breath, let us be thankful that we don't get justice, but that we get grace because our sin debt was paid in full by the shed blood of Christ. And may our thankfulness, may our our humble thankfulness motivate us to use the things that we've been blessed with, including every breath, every moment. May we use the things that we've been blessed with to serve our Lord and King with pure and joyful hearts. Our Father, we thank You for divine wisdom. For the understanding that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That the proud cannot stand before You, but that the humble are exalted by You. What a mystery. What a a great piece of revelation. Because Lord, we confess to You that we never would have thought that this would be the way it would work. Our flesh is so inclined to see things in a way other than your own. And we're reminded that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our our ways. 
And we thank you for that. We thank you for that. We confess to you today, Lord, that we deserve nothing. A fact that should keep us humble. And that we have no right to be prideful in front of you. And so, we thank you that it's by grace that you deal with us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he died in our place. Lord, teach us to cast away our idols. Teach us, Lord, to live our lives in your presence for your glory and to live each moment for that purpose, for glorifying Christ in humble and thankful obedience to him. May it be so by the power of Christ within us, the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, and your word instructing us in what pleases you for the glory of Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.